0: Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. Hope you are having a good start to your week. We are recording this on Sunday afternoon for perspective purposes because we always like to be as transparent as possible, right? Thank you. Joining us in Philadelphia, where he will later today be going to see the defending champion Raptors play the Sixers in a Eastern Conference playoffs rematch, is Tim Bontemps. Tim, I know that you're still riled up from that fantastic Cavs-Sixers game you saw last night, so I hope you've settled down <laughs> from that 45-point uh, tight squeaker. I
1: don't know if I've ever seen a game end faster than that game did.
0: Um, there were two teams that lost uh, Saturday by more than 40 points, first time in NBA history. The Pelicans got worked by Dallas by, I think, 46, and I think the Cavs lost by 45. So, you know, the parody that we saw coming into the league is is uh, right on schedule. Joining us from Austin is our resident cartographer, uh, Kirk Goldsberry. Kirk, you spent last night at a G league game and you have, and you have what to report. They'll always be the Austin Uh, Toros to me. You have, you have what to
2: report. The first thing I was told by my friends at the Austin Spurs is to make sure that you stop calling it the Austin Toros. Uh, the second (laughs) thing I have to report (laughs) Is I'm in love with the one free throw for two points or three points rule. It is, for those who don't know, the G League is experimenting with the new rule where a player who goes to the line for a two-shot shooting foul instead shoots one shot worth two points or one shot worth three points in the event of a three-point shooting foul. And Brian, I'm just here to report that that rule is awesome. It speeds up the flow of the game, um, and those free throw breaks are a lot shorter, and we get more action uh, and less pauses. So it was it was awesome.
0: So to go with the mechanics of this, you, if you get the first free throw, and if you make it, you get the two points. But if you miss it, you get a second free throw. Is that right?
2: For I don't think point. so. No. I no, think it's just you, it's it, one, and one and done. One and done.
0: One and done.
1: My question for you, Kirk, is that they have that rule for the first 46 minutes of the game, and then they go back to the way it, it always has been for the last two minutes. Do you think that's how it should be, or should it just be one free throw the whole
2: game no matter what? You know, that's, the great, that's a great question, Tim. I don't know. I think that's what we're going to test um, I think what I was asking people last night is: is two minutes the right time to start that sort of going back? Um, I think you have to go back to the original format at some point in the game, um, and maybe it's four minutes, maybe it's three minutes, but two minutes is a good is a good place to try. Uh, I think that's fair to ask, and I think the NBA is doing a good job by evaluating that uh, this year in the G League.
0: Let's let's fast forward 1 year to the trade season when the new analytic number that everybody is so excited about is who has got the best percentage on the first free throw. <laughs> the not only the great free throw shooters but the guys who always make the first one. Those guys because like the corner three-point shooter. Um, because the free throw would then become a vital uh shot in the, you know that one free throw would become a vital shot in the game just as valuable as uh as a three because it's worth double the points, not just worth 33% more, or 50% more, I should say, but worth 100% more. I mean, yeah, and it
2: increases, is, increases the pressure on the shooter, too. So so some players that have have trouble with pressure um, will see sort of more pressure in those big free throw moments in, in, in the I fourth see, quarter, maybe I not even I see podcast
0: time. topics galore when that gets <laughs> implemented, uh, just like the coach's <laughs> challenge. Um, speaking of the G League, uh, the Knicks, um, <laughs> You like, you like you like how I did that that was good right um <laughs> they almost and by the way this is it's interesting because last night um or I should say Saturday night because people listen to this on Monday actually had had two free throws with I think two tenths of a second left Marcus Morris he made the first missed the second and they ended up losing by a point um the Knicks are the first team to make the coaching change and I don't know maybe I'm I have some friends of mine who are diehard Knicks fans. I have some friends of mine who have good relationships with people in the Knicks organization, and they really pound on me for being so critical of them. They say that I don't, I'm not fair, that I, uh, I don't uh, take proper perspective. And sometimes they make some, some points, that I'm like, all right. But I just want to point out that as of Sunday afternoon— the Knicks front office had neither made a statement about David Fisdale or had a press conference to discuss the coaching change and why they promoted a G League coach to coach their team. And they had a press conference after a loss when they went to 2-8. and eight. At that press conference, they said, we feel like we owe everybody the explanation of what we think of this season. But now when they've changed the coach, they don't owe anybody And my point is, this is just the dysfunctional way that the Knicks operate, and it's led to another firing. And, you know, Tim, you and I were talking the other day, who that they were going to put into this job in the short term, I think, was going to really sort of foretell the the short term future of where this organization is going. And the fact that they chose Mike Miller, a guy who, you know, for all I know, will be a great coach, but they went down to the G League. What, What did that tell you that... Uh, about what's going to happen with this team after they made the switch.
1: Well, to correct you a little bit, uh, Mike Miller was the coach of the Westchester Knicks and actually was coach of the year in the G League a couple of years ago. He's was on; he been on David Fisdale's staff since last um,
0: Right, but he's yeah. never been a – they had two um, former guys who'd been head coaches in the NBA on their staff, and they right. selected right. him. But I'm right. sorry. No, that's, that's fair. I, I, was just, I, I didn't want people to think that. they
1: – I just didn't want people mm-hmm. to think they took the guy from not to try to defend the Knicks here cuz I'm about to not defend them a lot but they didn't go higher. And that's fair. Higher, I
0: didn't, you know, he I, fair enough. Okay.
1: Um but look, the fact of the matter is the fact that the Knicks have promoted Mike Miller, a guy who uh at times people probably have confused with the Mike Miller who played in the league for a long time and thought that that's who the Knicks were promoting cuz nobody'd ever heard of him before. Uh I think it's only going to reinforce the fact that now until They either announce that Steve Mills and Scott Perry are back next year or fire them and hire somebody else. Masai Ujiri is going to be the name that everybody is talking about with the Knicks until that decision, one way or the other, is finalized and made.
0: Explain why you think them hiring Mike Miller indicates the Masai Ujiri thing.
1: Well, listen, uh, at at Madison Square Garden, for the past two decades under James Dolan, the principle for everyone there has been to survive, right? So survive in advance and you in know, NCAA tournament terms. So in this instance, if you fire a coach, right, in theory, if the Knicks were to go out and hire some other coach, whether it's Mark Jackson or Jeff Van Gundy or whoever, name, name whatever, like, hire, and you give them a long-term contract, uh, that would, in theory, insulate the front office from a potential management change in a few months when the season ends. The fact that the Knicks promoted a guy who no one had ever heard of, who has had success in the G League but is not any kind of name, to, in theory, ride out. Uh, would suggest that James Dolan, the owner of the Knicks, uh, is looking at an overall change in the way things are going on at the Garden, which, frankly, he should be, given the way things are going. And that leaves open the possibility for cleaning house in a few months when the season ends and going out and trying to hire for, frankly, the first time he's owned the Knicks, the single best person possible on the market to run the team, whether it's Masai Jiri or someone else. And that, you know, that to me is what this signals, that there's at least the possibility that the Knicks are going to clear house, clean house in a few months and go out and uh, chase after Masai.
0: Kirk, when the Knicks started this season, they, I don't know if they genuinely believe this, but they certainly said it at media day. They had a press conference with Steve Mills and Scott Perry, and they, indicated that they felt this team was going to be vastly improved from the 17-win team last year. Did you look at this roster and say that, that you thought that that was going to be the case? Because one of the reasons he's being fired here isn't so much that he was 4-17, and 17, it's that I think he started 2-8, and eight, and then that was pretty much when they undercut him, and after that it was all just a death watch. Um, but d- did you look at this team and, and agree with them that you thought it was going to be an improved team?
2: Not at all. Uh, As soon as free agency sort of ended and we saw the dust settle on and they had one of those press conferences. And like everything else with the Knicks, the press conferences have been a disaster. And here's the thing with the team. They're like a broke down Cadillac with a busted engine and a wrecked transmission and the mechanics keep just tinkering with the steering wheel and expecting the car to suddenly run smoothly. And when it doesn't, they just replace the steering wheel again and again. David Fisdale was not the problem. Neither was Lenny Wilkins or Mike D'Antoni, neither was Jeff Hornacek, and it's not going to be Mark Jackson or Jeff Van Gundy or Becky Hammond or whoever they put in there. Look, MSG is such an important place for this league, and it's a tragedy that it hasn't seen like relevant pro basketball in a decade, Um, in large part because the home team is is like the Enron of the NBA. Uh, And until something fundamentally changes at the very top, it's going to be rinse and repeat. Um, whether it's with Masai or with somebody else, uh, something needs to change. And, and look, it's, it's a tragedy for the league, and it's, it's, it's about more than just coaches. I mean, the player development apparatus has been so bad, um, it's cost the league talent. As potential superstars say, like Kevin Knox, R.J. Barrett, um, matriculate into that incubator. Well, who really expects these guys to become the best versions of themselves? Um, and at this point, who expects the Knicks to, to help young players become superstars? So when I look at their roster, I see they didn't get any free agents. But for me, Brian, the real tragedy is that they have young, talented players who aren't really becoming the best versions of themselves. Um, and it's because the organization is sort of inept uh, from the top down. Um, but anyway, yeah, like good luck to the next coach.
0: Yeah, so one of the things I think they're really guilty of is um – what I call majoring in the minor, um, you know. For example, <laughs> they send out a essentially a press release. That's what that tweet was to say that Richard Jefferson wasn't actually offered a contract. As an example, um, you know, uh, I've gotten you know communiques from the Knicks um, in the past. You know, sometimes I misspoke on something, but it was very very minor, and I was reached out to to be corrected. You know, banning a reporter from certain press conferences because they don't like what that reporter is saying. Like, they really, really, uh, go into details, okay, on trying to defend themselves. And yet the same organization will okay the signing of a fifth power forward. Like, you look at one thing that is, you know, a, a fifteen million dollar decision, or in some cases much more, um, that materially maybe hurts your team, and that is given the rubber stamp. But other things that you would think would be trivial and just be annoyances, I don't have time for this, they really focus on, um, you know, and that is amazing to me. That is an amazing thing for any NBA team, but especially uh, this team. And so, you know, you talk about, Kirk, you talk about the lack of, of uh, development and, you know, the concern about their young players. So many people have talked about how this team signed five power forwards, and there was sort of this logjam, and and it led to David Fisdale trying to bend over backwards to figure out how to put it together. Let's just take that aside. This team didn't have point guards. This team didn't have any sort of uh, it it just didn't have any depth or, or or well thought out design for point guard. The Alfred Payton was the guy that they chose. He got hurt four games into the season. And as a result, and I think he missed 15 or 16 games. He just came back within the last uh, week. And so as a result, they had to play R.J. Barrett. They're probably the most important thing going in the franchise. They had to play him out of position. It's hard enough already to be a rookie. Um, but but to take somebody who's not a natural point guard anyway and say, okay, now you're our point guard, not so much because they felt that, that was his position, but because they you know they went into the season with Dennis Smith Jr and, and Alfred Payton as what they believed as their point guards to play him out of position and put him in one of the toughest things you could do which is to be a rookie point guard in the NBA has i believe materially hurt his development and he is having a worrisome regular season worrisome i, I mean especially and this doesn't have anything to do with, with uh, his uh, three point shooting or his um his uh, overall his uh, overall production but um, his free throw shooting is alarming. <laughs> it's just very alarming. Um, he's shooting at fifty three percent from the from the foul line. But like Tim, this is a th- this is a classic case. The roster is poorly set up, and so the result of that isn't just that they're four and eighteen, but it's that R J Barrett is being, in my mind, damaged. And this is something that they've done over and over and over. And this is. Um, where they really, where they have to, to, to look themselves in the eyes and try to figure out what their priorities as a franchise are.
1: No, 100% right, Brian. And look, go back to, you know, focusing on the small matters and missing the big picture, right? on At about 8 p.m. on June 30th, they're putting out a statement, apologizing, basically, for not signing Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, right? Because the Nets signed him. Um, it just every and and then they go into free agency. After that, they signed eight guys in the next day, and once again, the Knicks had no plan. And really, that's the way you could sum up the entire ownership tenure of James Dolan for the past two decades. They've had no plan. And the thing that's to me most remarkable about that is James Dolan owns two teams. Everybody focuses on the Knicks. He also owns the Rangers. This was period with the Rangers. He the team was a mess. But over the past fifty years they've been one of the top 10 teams in winning percentage in the NHL. They've been one of the model franchises in the NHL. And he went out right after he bought the team and hired Glenn Sather, who is the guy who created the Oilers dynasty in the 80s, is one of the like legendary basket, you know, hockey executives in the sport. And the most amazing thing about the whole tenure he's had with the Knicks is he's never done that with the Knicks. He's hired Phil Jackson who never did the job. He's hired Isaiah Thomas who, you know, was a failure in the job in Toronto and then hired him to do it with the Knicks. He has had Steve Mills, a you know who played at Princeton with David Blatt, but otherwise was a business executive, run the team multiple times you know, it before and after sexual harassment allegations. I mean, that, that to me is the most amazing thing. They've gone from, they've never had a single plan, and they've never hired anybody who's capable of instituting a plan. Well, so they hired Donny They, they just keep Walsh. going through the same thing. They up. hired, they hired, Donnie, hired Walsh Donnie Walsh for two years, and at the first moment that Dolan could retake control of things, he did in the Carmelo trade. And that, that is the one time they hired anybody like that, and it's the only time in the past two decades they've had any kind of a plan. And if they had a, they had any kind of organizational plan this summer, even if they were going to strike out on the star players they thought Don alluded to in his interview in March after they made the Chris S. Porzingis trade, uh, they would not have gone out and signed a bunch of guys who can't shoot and can't play make, to, to your point, to play alongside the single most important thing to have in their organization, R.J. Barrett, and put him in the same position he was in at Duke, where there is no spacing around him, and he has to force up bad shots. Now we're a quarter of the way through the season, and he's not playing great. He's shooting fifty percent at the line, and people are worried about his development. And it's just on and on to the next thing.
0: Yeah, and and I actually think that they did have a plan this time around, Kirk. They just didn't stick to it, and that's you know any, that's one of the big challenges in the NBA. I mean, um, um, when you are a gen- when you are a general manager um one of the most important things that you can do i believe while having watched the league for a long time is make sure that your ownership has buy in to what you are what you're selling ultimately it's up to you to to execute it but you know this was one of the things that happened with sam hinkey um that was a radical plan Um, and you know, it ended up having, it bore some fruit, the process, what have you. But what ended up happening on that was the ownership, uh, lost patience and pulled the plug on it. And he misjudged despite what conversations were had and everything like that. He misjudged his, uh, or had mistrusted, I should say his ownership's ability to, to follow the plan. And so one of the things that you have to realize if you are, um, running the Knicks, when you present a three or four year strategy as they did when they hired david Fizdale and they you know put forward what they wanted to do you have to believe that your owner is going to back you up and i think what we've basically seen especially with the decisions that they made in free agency over last summer which were a bunch of you know stop gaps and band-aids i'm not so sure that they were able to fulfill or or back up the plan that they had put in place
2: no, and you're right. And if if Sam Inky had the process, the Knicks have the abscess. There's nothing going on. No, <laughs> they should be. They should be. They should be developing young players. Who cares that you got Marcus Morris? You have R.J. freaking Barrett. You have Mitchell Robinson. You have Frank Ntilikina. You have Dennis Smith Jr. You have a fleet of young dudes that should coalesce into something in two or three or four years and you need to make sure that happens the north star needs to be 2023 2024 player development assets and, and and growth and that's just not what we're seeing there we're seeing this just this this and i we've we've repeated it but but tim was right like the the june 30th uh news thing where they're like sorry we didn't get these free agents what are you talking about you got R.J. Barrett. I remember on draft night watching his interview right after he got drafted. I'm like, this guy is going to be a star. He's so poised. We know what he can do on the court. But just something about his draft interview. I was like, this guy is a special dude. Uh, he's still 19. Um, you need to cherish that asset and develop that asset into something that's going to be an all-NBA player in four years and five years and six years. a centerpiece around the franchise. I have lost all confidence that this organization can do that simple thing.
1: Well, in, well in speaking Argy of Garrett, young players, Kristaps like Porzingis before him is a guy who right. really, really wants to be a Nick too, right? Even amid yeah. all this stuff, like his grandfather yeah, was he a Nick so, fan,
0: and who's so happy to get drafted by him.
1: So. Yeah, he was. He wanted the whole time to be a Nick. And, and to your point, Kirk, like Kristaps was like that a few years ago, and that went way south. And you know, it, speaking of ironies and and the way things have played out, what the Knicks should do is look at the team they really hate across the East River, the Nets. And how they spent the past their team and turning, you know, young players like Spencer Didwitty and Joe Harris, kind of cast off guys into into pieces for them, and building a culture that then attracted the star free agents to want to come play there. That is the, what the Knicks need to do, but they've never been able to figure out that 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 is the path they need to take. And I'm not convinced, you know, even by saying that you know Masai Ujiri is going to hang over the franchise, I'm not convinced they're going to be able to actually follow through on any plans to actually uh, make such a plan a reality. Hello, no one is available to take your call.
0: So I'm going to be honest with you. I've already been on Vivid Seats today to check out the Fiesta Bowl between Ohio State and Clemson. I'm planning to be in Phoenix during um, that big event. I'm an Ohio State fan. And Vivid Seats, you go to their app and you can immediately get a great idea of what the marketplace is because they are all about giving fans who love live entertainment and experiences a great chance to get great seats. The Vivid Seats, our listeners can watch their favorite teams and artists perform in person and you can credit back all of your purchases made through the Vivid Seats app to the Vivid Seats Rewards Loyalty Program. You find your favorite seats, uh, not just at sporting events, obviously concerts, theater and more. You use that app. They offer a great... Purchasing experience, as well as I mentioned that in-app loyalty program, Vivid Seats Rewards. You can build your status from MVP to Hall of Famer, and that triggers discounts from 10 to 16% on those purchases. You go through the App Store or Google Play to download that Vivid Seats app, and when you do so, you're automatically enrolled in the Vivid Seats Rewards loyalty program. And this is what I think is most important to know when you're starting this kind of process. All Vivid seats are confirmed orders, and they're backed by a 100% guarantee. Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do when I figure out which seats I'm going to buy for the Fiesta Bowl. I am going to enter the promo code ESPN25, ESPN25, and you get 10% off. I'm going to do that now before anybody else can get access to those seats. All right, speaking of um, young players... Uh, this rookie class last year's rookie class just blew us away and um continues to be impressive. This year's rookie class, especially the lottery, has been you know, look, it's still super duper early. It's just been it hasn't been as impressive. Um okay, Zion the number one pick was Zion, he obviously hasn't played, um isn't doing any significant work towards playing that Christmas Day Um, game that they're on now looks like it's probably very unlikely him to play. And John Morant had some moments, but now he's hurt and is out. So, you know, he's already, uh, he's week to week. He's already, you know, having his season short circuit a little bit. We talked about Barrett, who's shooting less than 40% from the field, 30% from three-point range, and 50% from the line, and, you know, has had moments, but is you know, not blown us away, only averaging 14 points a game. Um, Not that point averages everything, but... He's getting 32 minutes. um, You know, he was, and he was, you know, he's a born scorer, so that's concerning. Um, The number four pick, which the Timberwolves moved up to get, is Jared Culver. Um, He has been, I mean, okay on defense offensively, which is not what he was drafted for. He was drafted to be a lockdown defensive player. Um, He is, just frankly, not been good. He's shooting 37% from the field, 26% on threes. His free throw shooting is just—I mean, again, like what is going on? He's shooting 44% from the line. He's not getting to the line much, but you know, you put your finger—you uh, know—it's like a dipstick. If, if if a guy's free throw percentage goes up um, or is still is strong, it leads you to believe that their field goal percentage can possibly be strong. In fact, if you look at a guy who's um a most improved player candidate this year, Brandon Ingram, whose three-point percentage has soared this year. His free-throw percentage has soared 20 points. Um, there's usually a correlation there. Um, you know, Culver is – he got some starts, but, you know, he has not been a guy who you instantaneously say, wow, that's a, that's a difference maker. The number five pick was Darius Garland, um, who is getting a lot of minutes from the Cavs, started, has started every game. Um, and is just not shooting well. Under forty percent from three, under forty percent from the field. Um, not getting many assists for a guy. Again, he's getting as much in that, as much uh, atten- as much you know, uh, playing time. Just he's not not playing that great. And um, you know, some of these guys are just on bad teams. The Knicks are a bad team. The Cavs are a bad team. Uh, Kirk, this is. Um, and we'll go on and talk about some of the other guys in a little bit. But that's just the top end. Of the draft, I'm sorry, uh, I said Jared Culver was drafted fourth. He was drafted sixth. Uh, DeAndre Hunter was the guy. Uh, they they moved up for both guys got moved up for. That's why I got messed up. But DeAndre Hunter with the the Hawks, who was picked fourth, he um, you know again another guy who was expected to be a big time defensive player um, has just been okay there. The Hawks are arguably uh, the worst defense in the league or in the bottom two or three in the league. Um, has not shot the ball well. Um, Kirk, what do you make of the top end of this, uh, of this draft?
2: Well, like you said, there's a Zion Williamson-sized hole in the cohort. Um, he's likely the best first-year player in the league, but his injuries robbed us of, of proof of that. You, you've seen that. Uh, you said that. Uh, outside of Zion, the rookie class has been, has been disappointing, and, and Ja Morant is probably rookie of the year if he can get back and, and be healthy. Uh, but when you look at the Rookie of the Year, besides Ja Morant, I have a race between Eric Pascal and Kendrick Nunn. Eric Pascal was was drafted 41st in this. <laughs> he's a second round pick and he's been a monster in the paint uh, and he's going to be a real resource for Golden State going forward. Nunn, uh, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, has been a revelation. He's come back to earth recently. Uh, he's 24 years old, which might give some voters pause. Uh, and ultimately, I think he and, and Tyler Harrow might split the votes in Miami. Uh, we talked about RJ Barrett being all over the place. He's only 19. Um, Rui Hashimura has been sort of bright in Washington. He looks like a solid player. But regardless, Brian, here's what I would, I would say about the 2019 cohort. It's largely a group of talented young players playing on really bad NBA teams. Many of them are being asked to do too much. Uh, within bad offenses, and their numbers bear that out. Their efficiency numbers look like the efficiency numbers of young players being asked to do too much. Here's the defining stat, I think, that, that wraps this up. Uh, aside from the pair of rookies in, in Miami, in, in Harrow and Nunn, uh, and Terrence Davis in Toronto, all of the top 20 scoring rookies, Brian, in the NBA play on losing teams, uh, many of which are real bad, which you mentioned, Brian. Uh, Cleveland, Golden State, um in other words, the league's best fresh talent is buried in bad offense. Long story short, I think that's what we're seeing.
0: Tim, none of these guys can shoot Cameron <laughs> Reddish. Cameron Reddish, 31% from the field. Um, he was a 10th pick. I mean, like, Tyler Hero, one of the reasons that Tyler Hero is, you know, has been a standout is that the guy can actually make a shot. I mean, there isn't anybody <laughs> shooting over... 40 percent from the field or even coming close to it from three-point range other than him he's shooting 45 percent from the field 39 percent from three-point range that makes him um first team all rookie almost right now
1: yeah i I mean a couple things to point out it's a quarter of the way into their first year to kirk's point a lot of these guys are on bad teams um but there's also a lot of guys who are just playing bad like i'm in boston a lot carson edwards has been a disaster he doesn't do anything but shoot and he's shooting 31 percent from the field and Grant Williams who Brad Stevens likes a lot and does a lot of good stuff is shooting 24% from the field and is over 25 from 3. So and still has to play some because of some of the injuries they've had. So
0: you want to uh, you want to bring up Romeo Langford while you're at it. Another lottery Oh point. yeah, well, and he's it, right. Then one there's game. Romeo
1: Langford who's played not only has he played one game, he's played 14 seconds, which is basically the amount of time he's been healthy uh, since he got drafted. He missed all of summer league, he missed basically all of training camp. So not a great-looking draft for the Celtics, especially when the guy here in Philly who they traded, uh, the Philly traded up to get, Matisse Thibel, uh is one of the best defensive prospects I've ever seen, and would really be a nice fit for them uh, off the bench at this point. But uh, beyond beyond those guys, one I wanted to bring up real quick is Brandon Clark. just picked 21st, and he was a bit of an older guy out of Gonzaga. And I, I think between him and John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, who they drafted last year, that's that's a pretty nice core for Memphis to, to build around going forward.
0: Well, sadly, Brandon Clark has been hurt, too. Um, I will bring also up P.J. True. Washington, um, who uh, is making shots. And one of the reasons he's with Charlotte, who I think was taken with maybe the 13th pick, uh, no, 12th, 12th pick. I think. Um, one of the reasons this guy has exploded out to me is because he's making shots. He, he shoots 50% from the field, 42% on threes. And he's taking – he's not taking a lot of threes a game, but he's taking three a game. Um, he's had a few games where he's really been explosive. I don't know what his overall upside is, but he's a stretch four man, which is obviously in demand in this league. And he's making shots. Um, I mean, shooting is absolutely at an ultra-premium in this league. And all these guys who got drafted up at the top, like none of them – are making those shots. So I agree with you that if you're on a bad team, it's not the most fertile ground. We talked about how the Knicks faulty roster is forcing RJ Barrett into some uncomfortable situations. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, he has, you know, a player like Tyler hero that's on a team that's, it's much deeper uh, has the luxury of being used in maybe a better situation. But um that doesn't, if you're on a bad team, it doesn't affect what you can do when you get a, an open 25, 20 footer. And, um, and that's, that, that's one of the things that has, has really jumped out at me. And there's, there's other guys, you know, further back in this draft, you know, um, um, who just haven't done much either. I and mean, there's, you know, um, Nasir Little hasn't done much. I mean, uh, he had a, he had a great opportunity for the, uh, for the Blazers and, you know, they didn't, they decided not to go with, um, decided not to keep giving him a chance and they signed Mello instead. Uh, Ty Jerome has been hurt. Um, Dylan Windler, who went to the Cavs, has been hurt. Um, uh, some Brian, of these other guys have, yes.
2: I know you and Bontemps have both voted on end of year awards in the past. Is this going to be the most difficult uh, all rookie second team voting in recent memory?
0: Might be a difficult all-rookie first team.
1: Yeah, it's going to be tough. It's um, going to be tough.
0: Like Coming Nakel, up with 10 Nakel, good rookies
1: is going to be hard, huh?
0: Nikhil Alexander-Walker, okay, who the Pelicans got when they made that deal to get the extra picks. He's a shooting guard, okay? He's shooting 32% this season. Now, granted, you go over the history of NBA players, as Bon Temps mentioned, and you look and almost to to a T, their worst shooting season is their first year. So all these guys are going to improve. But you'd like to see even a shooting guard to be shooting in the in the low forties as a rookie, maybe, you know, forty one, forty two percent would be okay. These guys none of these guys can convert anything. And all of these teams, Kirk are looking at players with the idea that they're that they're trying to get analytics they're trying to um get uh you know they're, they're they're using analytics to 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 apply um to to get these guys they're really evaluating these guys on that on that front um uh now jackson hayes who is a spectacular dunker he is shooting 61 percent um but he has had difficulty being an impact player um at all, uh, for, for new Orleans he has been sort of in and out of the starting lineup. Um, only averaging nine points a game. So he, he, he makes shots, but he only dunks. So just to, just to be fair to, um, uh, all those guys out there. But, uh, I just, I'm, I'm just concerned because this, this was a class that, um, you know, some teams, you know, there was multiple trades inside the top, inside the lottery because some teams were excited about some of these guys And um, you're right, Hachimura has been okay, but um, uh, that's, uh, I don't know. Um, We we see all these teams tanking, and I'm like, is that the best strategy?
2: I have two points for you on this, Brian. Number one, we're 20 games in. Somebody's going to, somebody, maybe two or three of these guys will get better. Um, The other thing I'd say is there was a rookie in Cleveland in 2003, 2004, who was probably the least efficient shooting player in the nba um and that was lebron so you know you you pointed that out in fairness rookie year shooting numbers are, are usually atrocious to your point though there isn't one or two or three dudes who are really like oh man this guy's having a breakout year if they are if there is it's people like pascal who came out of the second round or kendrick nunn who came out of the the g league none of those lottery picks i think it's fair at this point to be like Who is going to emerge from this lottery other than Morant or Zion, who are hurt? And at this point, I think it is like Tyler Harrow or Hachimura. Um, I don't know, but time will tell. I would say let's watch the next 60 games and see which one of these guys can figure it out.
1: It doesn't help that last year's class had a lot of guys who stood out as rookies, too. So when you think back to that as a reference point, it only makes this year's class look worse.
0: Kobe White, 37%. And I like the way he plays, as I've talked about in this podcast before, but he's a gunner, and he looks, he's probably going to be a gunner his whole career. You can't be a gunner at 37%, not in 2019-20. Um, you know, the other thing, other thing about LeBron Kirk and his rookie year, they played him a point guard, and one of the reasons why he was so inefficient was because he was turning the ball over like six times a game because he was completely <laughs> out of position at point guard at that time. Now he's playing point guard 17 years later, but it took him a long time <laughs> To, to, to get comfortable enough to do that and he was completely out of position because the roster was very
2: poorly designed so at that saying. time and there's a, it's a, there's there's your RJ Barrett comp right there next fans Hello no one is available to take your call
0: okay so let's check the calendar it's uh, December it's the holiday season that's right. What else is in season? How about buzzer beaters? That's because TESO, the official watch of the NBA, has a great new contest for buzzer beaters. Every time a buzzer beater happens, fans will be rewarded with prizes, including trips, autographed merchandise, game tickets, and more. You sign up at us.tesoshop.com slash buzzer beater to enter for your chance to win. And coming up soon, a trip to the All-Star Game in Chicago in February. So that's coming up first. But in the meantime, anytime there's a buzzer beater, you can get good stuff. Obviously, if you want to check out Tissot just to look at their watches, don't forget they're stylish, trendy, innovative, and made of the highest quality materials. They're the official timekeeper of the NBA, bringing you a special opportunity tied to that most iconic moment, the buzzer beater. Sign up now again at US.tisoshop.com slash buzzerbeater. And you can check them out on Facebook at facebook.com slash tiso.us, on Twitter at Tso on Instagram at tiso.us, and you can check the hashtag this is your time for more information. Speaking of Cleveland, um Bontemps, you were at that game last night. Um Woj had a report. Uh, over the weekend that they are now going to listen to trade offers on Kevin Love. Let me just say that I think that the Cavs phone lines were always open on Kevin Love, but let me give you a little detail of what's happening there. Um, There is obviously a bit of a disconnect between new coach, John Beeline and some of the players on that roster specifically some of the veteran players on that roster. Now, I want to single out that Tristan Thompson is not one of them. Tristan Thompson um, likes playing for John Line and was very vocal in defending him after a story in The Athletic came out over the weekend that also detailed exactly what I'm saying. But I can just tell you from day one, from from Summer League, um, some of the veterans came to Summer League um to work out with uh you know that team and they were like is this the way it's going to be because they were immediately turned off by him um love uh showed up for training camp about two days before most of these players are in for most of september kevin was living his best life um out in the world and uh he was showing on instagram living his best life and he showed up right at the end because i didn't I think that was a message right there Um, and he's clearly unhappy and so the Cavs I think are feeling a bit of a critical mass here because they they realize that he has three years and 90 million left on his contract which makes him difficult to trade and their preference would be to let the market develop a little bit but it's also clear that him and some other players who are not down with John Beeline being there potentially is causing an issue with the young players who John Beeline is focused on. So Tim, what the hell are the Cavs supposed to do about Kevin Love right now?
1: They're, they're supposed to view him as a distressed asset, and I would say get rid of him as soon as they can uh, for what they can. Uh, to your point, the three years of $90 million left makes him you know one of the, the worst contracts in the league probably at this point. You know, we're in an NBA where there aren't a lot of long contracts. Um, you, know, you know, the cost was for the, the Rockets to trade Chris Ball for Russell Westbrook, who also doesn't have a great contract. Um, so, you know, to me, that that's the, the goal for the Cavs needs to be to get him off the team and, and to go forward with these young guys. Because to your point, last night, you know, it was pretty jarring in the second half to see Kevin Love 10,000-yard stare the entire second half basically while tristan to your point was talking to Beeline line and was like talking to guys on the bench and trying to be involved and kevin looked like he'd rather be literally anywhere on the planet but sitting on the Cavs bench uh watching his team play
0: so you mentioned uh, it's kind of hard to analyze the chris paul trade um because uh that we know it wasn't of salary a straight salary dump because um uh, obviously russell westbrook was involved but people generally think that Chris Paul has one of the most challenging contracts in the league. And again, it's not because he's not a good player. It's because in 2021, 22, when he's going to be, I think 37, he's got 44 million on that contract. Um, Kevin love. Uh, I mean, just, just, you know, to, to make it clear, his contract is even longer. His contract goes through 22, 23, I think. Yep. And, He's going to be 34 at the end of it. Now the contract, the way the Cavs designed it, it, actually descends. So um, he's owed 28 million in 22, 23. It's not the same as uh, as Chris Paul, um, but it's it's up there. I mean, another guy that you would think is, you know, if you listed like the most difficult to trade contracts in the NBA, Chris Paul would be there. Um, probably, you know, uh, Nick Batum would be there. Uh, Batum is owed 27 million next year, but those guys' contracts are all shorter. Kirk trading Kevin Love, you, you know, I, it's not just a matter of oh, what value can we get for this, you know, former All Star stretch forward who can hit the outside shot and rebound. It's how do you view that player versus taking on three years and 90 million? And I'm not so sure because because I, I, I know that when the Cavs extended him they extended him under the belief that he would be able to potentially trade him down the line for, for assets. He's averaging the fewest points since his second season. Um, He's repeatedly missed games due to injury. He's had a a lingering back issue for several years. I don't know if the Cavs, the Cavs may have to, as Tim said, view him as a, as a salary dump more than trade him to get, players and picks that you think of when star players are moved
2: no you guys are hitting the nail on the head at least as far as i'm concerned this is in a very very expensive spot up shooter that can get you rebounds but is a defensive liability um, he's got a dicey injury history that is very relevant to any contender he's on the wrong side of 30 and that's a really hefty price tag for such a player that said i think if a contender can hold their noses and ignore that price tag, there's no question he can help. Like Woj said in the piece, he's an intriguing target for franchises in both conferences, especially in a season which so many teams believe one addition uh, could catapult them into a championship uh, contention. That's what that's Woj's purpose. But here's here's where I think you're exactly right. Even while he's obviously not a fit in the rebuild that's happening in Cleveland, um, that doesn't mean it's easy to move him. Cleveland is, is, is bound to think they're doing their trade partner a favor by giving them Kevin Love, this all-star, this double-double machine. Meanwhile, everybody on the other side of the phone, Brian, uh, is going to think they're doing Cleveland a favor for taking this contract off the books. Uh, it's hard to imagine a contender absorbing this monstrous deal um, and sending back the kinds of assets that Cleveland might seek in a rebuilding situation. The other thing that makes it really tough to trade him,
1: with everybody so focused on 2021 cap space, That's right. even contracts that are bad for, say, another year and a half are not really a logical trade thing. Like, for example, look at the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat are starting Myers-Leonard to power forward. Would they love to start Kevin Love instead of Myers-Leonard? I have a feeling they would. But even <laughs> if you said, we'll give you James Johnson, which is basically $28 million in dead salary through next season, yeah, if they he, trade for he, Kevin Love, he, they
0: then can't sign a max player. Yeah, you you broke up a little bit there, but just um Deion Waiters and James right. Johnson obviously are guys uh who could who could be using a trade. The Heat didn't get into the Chris Paul game because they were worried about protecting 2021 cap space. Mm. They're certainly going to be dissuaded from getting into the Kevin Love game. So this comes down to so you know you say teams in both conferences. Well, which teams? Which teams this make? Because I because I've seen the Heat mentioned. And I mean, I think you can scratch the heat off because I don't think they're touching 2021 cap space. Just don't think they're going to do it, especially not. I mean, they would do it for Steph Curry, you know, uh, <laughs> but I don't think they're doing it for, for Kevin Love. Um, yeah, no way. So the, the team that naturally floats to mind here is the Portland Trailblazers. Kevin is from Portland, does have a desire to return there. That wasn't the case in his whole career, but now I do think would, would want to play back in, um, in Portland. They have, Huge amount of money committed to Lillard and McCollum through 2024, um, so it's not like they're impacting long-term space. Uh, they have expiring contracts in Hassan Whiteside and Kent Bazemore. Um, they have the um, the ammunition to get it done. But they <laughs> Kirk, they just signed a new power forward. His name's Carmelo Anthony. He was Player of the Week <laughs> last week. Um, can Portland does Portland get seriously interested in this and can they? What can they send to Cleveland? Because Cleveland will not look at Hassan. You know, if you're just salary dumping, yeah, you'll take Hassan Whiteside because it's just a salary dump. But the, the, the Cavs will not want to look at it that way. The Cavs will probably want um, a, a draft pick or two.
2: Yeah, and that's the problem. So if, if if I could say to answer your question, Portland could get involved. They shouldn't get involved. He he doesn't he doesn't put them over the top. This is a team that has defensive issues. Um, that, that, that's not going to put them over the top. Um, so I, I don't I know that that's a nice story, him going back home. I think he's wearing the O on his jersey these days. It's for Oregon. Um, that would be nice for him to end up there. I think there's other teams that are better fits. Um, even in the Western Conference, I think Utah might be a better fit in the Eastern Conference and, and, and Tim would probably speak to this better than me. Both Boston and Brooklyn come to mind. Um, he's been linked to Boston in the past. Uh, but I just don't see Portland doubling down on the next three years at that number for a core that essentially rep- it would be Lillard, McCollum, and Love. I just don't think that's the kind of core. Oh, that's I don't gonna see how really Boston trading for him,
0: even if they wanted to. Tim, they don't have anything to trade.
2: Boston will not be trading
1: for him. The only the only teams I went through all the teams. The only teams that I could see that really made sense for him in a trade were Charlotte and Phoenix. And those are teams that are just trying to get into the playoffs for the first time in a long time. And you could do like Bismack Biombo and Michael Kidd Gilchrist and some bunch of expiring salary, do Tyler Johnson and Frank Kaminsky, maybe some kind of protected first round pick to again expiring contracts to, to take on Kevin Love. I just it's hard to see where teams are gonna go. I wanna sign up for a thirty one year old power forward who's had injury issues, who's owed ninety million dollars through twenty twenty three it's just hard so the only
0: other th- it's- the only other thing that you could do is the Cavs could take on some bad salary themselves is you know basically trade trade long contract for long contract there's not that many long bad contracts in the league as you mentioned or if the Cavs are really seeking a draft pick or two if they you know they could sweeten the deal with their other trade asset that people want which would be Tristan Thompson and package Love and Thompson together, but that's a huge number to swallow um, mm-hmm. because Thompson's um, um,
1: two of them together are about forty six million dollars.
0: That's and you know you, you know you're trading basically two guys off a team. that's not very good. He's at eighteen uh, five. Is there a team that could do that deal? It it just gets complicated. I just I just think um, Kevin Love being available again, not because of the player he is. But just because of that contract, I just I don't see a, an easy way out of this one. Um, Kirk, what about Tristan Thompson? I mean, can could they trade him together somewhere?
2: The number is just too big, in my opinion. And again, most of that's on Kevin. Uh, and, and 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 we brought that up. It's not Kevin twenty twenty. It's Kevin twenty twenty one. Kevin twenty twenty two. That's that's just too big of a number. You add Tristan to that deal. I just don't see a team that can do that. Um, look, we. I <laughs> want to. There's, there's one team that seems to love power forwards and love making bad decisions, and we already talked about them on this podcast. Uh, the New York Knicks. I don't think we're going to see Kevin go to the New York Knicks, but um, look, I don't know where this is going to go. I, I do think it comes back to that central crux, though. Brian, Cleveland thinks they're sending out an asset and doing their their trade partner a favor. The trade partner thinks they're doing Cleveland a favor, and like you're saying, I don't see an easy way that this gets done.
0: I think
1: to it's your question to about for- Tristan, to your yeah. question about Tristan, Brian, I think it's going to be tough for the Cavs to move him for value. Also, because again, like a team like the Celtics would love to trade for Tristan, probably he would give them a nice piece in the middle. Uh, that, that number at eighteen five and an expiring is with the the teams that are contending. It's going to be hard for them to come up with that kind of number to get a deal done. So. <laughs> It, it's just also, a tricky, a belief, tricky math around the league. There's
0: a belief that Tristan would get bought out, although I don't know. I mean, Tristan – let me say this. The, the, the concept that Tristan – because I've, I've talked to some teams. I've even had some teams who know that I'm close to the Cavs and know that I've known Tristan for a while actually reach out to me about doing background research on Tristan in the event that he gets bought out. But let me just say that uh, the Cavs have $70 million in cap space next summer. They're not going to be able to spend that on free agents, all on free agents. And Tristan Thompson is a guy who is is proving to be, trying to be a leader on that team, is buying into what they're doing, is buying into the coach. And you know, I'm not saying that they're going to give him an equal contract, but Tristan Thompson's best bet could be to stay in Cleveland and get another contract there. and so that would make it you know I can't foresee into February, but he may not be looking to get rid of give up his bird rights to go uh you know be a a bit player on a team so much water has to pass under the bridge between now and then I mean, who knows there could be like a a team that's desperately in need of a center that could win a championship right away, and maybe Tristan fits in but um you know g- you know giving up getting bought out also means giving up your bird rights, and in a summer where not a lot of teams have cap space. That might be Tristan facing that he's getting the mid-level. And I don't think Tristan sees himself as a mid-level player. Mm-hmm. And so all of this makes it just so difficult. And, again, if you are have paid any attention to the Cavs at all over the last two weeks or read anything that their Cleveland-based media has been writing about it, you can see that this is this is reaching a, a, a crisis point. Um, with where Love is in, in, you know, and where, where where the rest of the team and the young players are. And so I'm sure they'd love to trade him in the next 24 hours if they could. I just don't see how that gets played out. Kirk, is there anybody else as we come close to December 15th that you're looking at to see uh, what happens with that you think could, could be active on the market in the short term?
2: Uh, you know, the, December 15th is really relevant just to remind people because you can now trade. Free agents that signed in the summer of 2019, and that's a population that represents, I think, about 40 percent of the league. So December 15th is relevant. So the real trade window in the NBA is like a 53-day, I think, 53-day span that connects December 15th and the trade deadline. I'm looking at Chris Paul, of course, uh, Kevin Love. We mentioned. Uh, and maybe some of the Spurs guys, DeMar DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge, Rudy Gay, Marco Bellinelli, depending on what goes on there for the next few weeks, the next month or two, uh, I think those guys could be uh, interesting to contenders around the league, um, interesting to teams trying to make the playoffs. Um, so beyond Kevin Love, maybe Chris Paul. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think if, if Chris Paul is, is, is even movable at this point. Um, DeMar DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge... Um, and maybe some of the other Spurs, vets, Bellinelli, um, Rudy Gay. Tim, I, I think you made an
0: interesting team when you mentioned Charlotte. Charlotte has a bunch of guys on expiring contracts, so there are rentable players there, and they have a big man. As teams look for big men, they have a big man who is maybe one of the more undervalued big men in the league in Cody Zeller. Um, it's a team that is trying to retrofit and go younger. They're actually having more success this season than uh, a lot of people, including me, uh, thought. Um, they are a team that I think could be could be in the market, sort of, sort of, you know, in the market. They could sort of go either way um, as they see where they are. I don't think they would do something maybe December fifteenth, but maybe sometime in February. And Cody Zeller is an interesting name. He is under contract for a reasonable number this year and next for about 15 million. He averages, um, 11 points and 8 rebounds, shoots at a high percentage, can defend centers, can defend, um, uh, power forwards, um, low impact guy in terms of locker room, um, 27 years old, right in his prime, um, like I said, favorable contract, doesn't impede your, your uh, cap for 2021 if you have long-term aspects. You and I have talked about this. Cody Zeller is one of the undervalued potential trade targets in the league. I'm not saying that Charlotte would even look so to get rid of him, but if they could find something that could benefit them into next season, I think they might listen.
1: Yeah, I agree, especially because their hot start has started to fade. They're now 9-15. and 15. They're probably going to plummet uh, as, as their luck late in games turns. Um, I don't think Chris Paul is really tradable at this point because of the 2021 situation that we talked about, um, unless there's a team that's just desperate for a star, and I, I don't really see that on the market. And the guy that's kind of under the radar that I'm interested in is Bogdan Bogdanovich in Sacramento. Uh, they paid a ton of money uh, back in October. He's not going to start for them, he's going to be restricted free agent this summer, and he only makes like $8 million. And, you know, whether it's Philly, whether it's Boston, one of these teams that has you know some smaller contracts to package together, um, he's a guy that coming off the bench as a playmaker and a shooter could really be a swing piece. So I'm curious to see kind of what happens there and if at some point he does become available because I think he's a guy, because of the combination of skill set and contract, that could fit in a lot of places.
0: Yeah, this is a guy, he averages 15 points a game, Not coming, coming off the bench, doesn't start, um, for a team that's been disappointing um, and... Again, if you don't have – this is why Gallinari uh, coming out of Oklahoma City is interesting. If you can't sign a free agent this summer because you don't have cap space, one way you can do it is by acquiring them before they come become free agents. If you trade for Gallinari now, you get his bird rights, and you can keep him if you like him. You, as you mentioned, Tim, you trade for Bogdan Bogdanovich now. Um, it's a guy that you have, his, you have his bird rights on, and you also uh, – he's restricted, so you, you, you freeze the market a little bit. So – um, those are going to be interesting names. Um, I, I think you know both Sacramento and and Charlotte both are probably not, are you know not very likely not going to be playoff teams, but you know can't give it up just yet. But um, as you look at the contenders, as they look around, and again Bogdanovich is eight million dollars. It's a, it's a much easier trade to execute than thinking about having having to trade or figure out a trade for a guy like Tristan Thompson. Those are types of guys who. Um, you know, just you know, make more sense. Uh, by the way, I'd like to point out that um, Cody Zeller's nickname is the Big Handsome. <laughs> have you ever? Gallo
1: is an interesting. I, I think a lot of people, including me, uh, thought he would end up in Portland. Uh, they needed a four. It would make a lot of sense for him to go there. But now they have signed Carmelo, and he's kind of doing, at least in theory, what Gallo would be doing for them. Um, and frankly, with this Rodney Hood injury, you know, it, it's. It's going to be tough for them to trade, say, a Kent Bazemore. You know, to to lose a wing. So it's it's that's all the more reason why they can't,
0: if they really do believe in in uh, in Melo at least this season, um, which they seem to be. um, It makes even more unrealistic that they would put.
2: I got one more name for you on that team, Brian. Okay. The Blazers are nine and fourteen. If 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 they if they have a thirty nine percent winning percentage at Christmas or New Year's Day. Do they become sellers? Is C.J. McCollum somebody we should be looking at? Have you guys thought about that? Have you heard anything? There's some buzz around C.J. Um, do you think Portland could or would uh, try to get off C.J. Uh, before the deadline?
0: So it's interesting. Uh, Tim Mc, uh, Tim McMahon brought that up a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Blazers. Um, I subsequently heard from a number of people in the league who said... They should look at that, uh, but not, not that uh, they, ha- they are looking at it, just to be clear. Um, uh, McCollum signed an extension over the summer. He does. I do think he's still trade-eligible, though, before the deadline. He is, he is signed through 23-24, high-quality player, but um, after this season has, I'm just going to do some rough math, about $128 million left on his contract. So basically, um, you would be, you'd be, you'd be thinking about it like this. I I think Bobby Marks, when he was talking about Kevin Love, he said, if you are, if you were a front office, would you sign Kevin Love to a three-year, $90 million contract? Um, that's one way you have to look at it. If you're a front office, would you sign CJ McCollum to a four-year, $120 million contract? Um, this summer? Maybe you would. Maybe you think he's that good, um. He is a little bit older. Uh, There are some people who think that McCollum is really good now, but they wonder (coughs) about the end of that deal. That's a long way away, though. Mm -hmm. Um, Tim, do you think there would be a robust market for McCollum if the Blazers decided to go that route?
1: I don't really because of the same things we've talked about. I think a lot of the teams that are really trying to push right now are all being open, you know, an open destination for stars in 21. So I think it would make it tough. I mean, maybe... Say a team like Orlando, if they value him, maybe you could do something around Aaron Gordon, maybe. But Aaron Gordon's been bad this year. Um, You know, maybe again, like a team like Charlotte would want to make a swing, but um, I I think it's going to be in this era we're in now, where all these teams have all these guys are on shorter term deals. Looking at a guy who's owed, you know, including this year, one hundred and fifty million dollars or so through his age thirty three season, it's tough to really get excited about that.
0: Well, I definitely think that they could trade McCollum in the next fifteen minutes. I think there'd be a bunch of teams lining up for it. The issue is could they trade him for pieces that actually make them better in Portland? Well that
1: and well that's what I mean, right? It's like yeah. this is different than Kevin Love in that they I think they'd have to really be wowed to move him or get something of real value because I still I that the way Portland looks at this season is hey if we can Go on a little run here and hang around and get Yusuf Nurkic back later and maybe add a piece. We could get in the playoffs and make a run in the West, right? They just made the Western Conference Finals last year, so I don't think they're going to blow it up and give CJ away. Um, but I also don't I, I don't see a robust market of teams like for them to trade for him for just that reason either.
0: Well, you know, New Orleans is a bit of a question mark because I don't know if they can touch their roster, whether it's JJ Redick. Um, or Drew Holiday until they see Zion play I mean Zion was damn impressive in the preseason and I don't you know as much as they've been struggling and they are in a bad streak right now and Alvin Gentry starting to face the heat I don't know how you could evaluate him as a coach or their team until you see Zion which they say he is on schedule he's not off schedule yet so uh, we'll see. But more to discuss with that in the future. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, Kirk, for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective podcast. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.